Yes, today we are going to talk about addiction. And so we're going to start by breaking down what addiction actually is. And Dr. Burton is going to give us the, am I saying this right, the DSM? Right. The DSM, which is a diagnostic and statistical manual it's a, for, you know, people like psychologists, it's where we get the diagnoses. But okay. I, I want to talk just a little bit about the word addiction, because I think in what you might call pop culture, popular mm -hmm. culture, I think often the word is misused and it's attached often to things that to behaviors that we don't like. And we can mm -hmm. say, oh, that person's addicted to them. And I think later on, we'll go into more detail about that. But I think it's important to talk about from a psychological perspective mm -hmm. that there are actually specific things that you have to have specific characteristics in order to be you labeled, know, labeled an addict. And I think often with those other things, you know, uh, like sexuality or eating, it's not that helpful. We can go into more mm -hmm. detail about that. So the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Bible for a long time, although people who are listening who who know what's going on know that that's actually not different. And I'll just say there's an, what's called the ICDM, which is used now, which is an international diagnostic um, okay. labeling, but we'll go with the DSM. So the DSM uh, addiction is a problematic pattern of use of an intoxicating substance. So you can see that for them, for the DSM, it's very much about an intoxicating substance okay. uh, leading to clinically significant impairment or distress. And then they have all these different criteria, 10 or 11 diagnostic criteria. I'll just go over some of those. And, and then, you know, depending on how many of these criteria you have, you might have a mild addiction or a moderate addiction or a severe addiction. So here are some of the criteria. The substance is often taken in, in larger amounts or over a longer period than was intended. Uh, there's a persistent desire or unsuccessful effort to cut down or control the use of a substance. That's often the case if you talk with um, addicts or people struggling mm -hmm. with that. I don't know that I've ever talk to one who said they didn't want to have it change and they didn't want to deal with it. It's just really, really hard to do. Mm -hmm. A great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain the substance or use the substance or recover from its effects, that craving, strong desire, and then the social aspects of it. Recurrent use of the mm -hmm. substance results in a failure to fulfill major obligations like at work, at school, at home. And uh, I can talk later on my experience with this is really in the, in the context of a relationship or a family. Mm -hmm. And I can talk about how really devastating it is. Uh, use of the substance continues despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems. So even though it causes all these work problems, you might get fired, you might get warnings, your, you know, your spouse may say, I'm going to leave you. So even though you have all these negative experiences, you still can't change it. Mm -hmm. uh, so important social, occupational, recreational activities are given up or reduced because of it. Sometimes, you know, you even get into hazardous situations. 
So the classic example of that would be someone who's an alcoholic and is driving. So driving mm -hmm. under the influence and, you know, repeated experience with that driving under the influence that shows an addictive behavior. And then the other thing is tolerance. So a need for markedly increased amounts of the substance to achieve that same level of intoxication or desired effect. And so, you know, you have to take more essentially to mm -hmm. get the same effect. And, and uh, again, we can talk a little bit later about why that is. It has to do with the brain and what's going on in the brain. So mm -hmm. that gives I don't know what that's like for you to hear that. That may be the first time to actually hear that. Uh, what are actually the criteria that you have to have in order to be diagnosed with uh, an addiction? Is that different than what you might have thought? Yes and no. So it depends again on, on the context and what you're talking about. When I think of things like drugs and alcohol, and when you think of, for example, opioid, and there's a mm. huge opioid crisis. Really I big. don't know about, uh, yeah, I don't know about globally, but it's a really big crisis in America. And then alcohol, those are things that are considered socially acceptable, at least alcohol and opioids are used medically. And I think they have a, a place and I think they are very important for people who are, who have been through something traumatic and they, or who are in a lot of pain. I think opioids mm -hmm. can be very helpful, but they are also extremely addictive. And I think there was a time where doctors were much too quick to prescribe them. Oh, and I yeah. think they're they're realizing that and they're they're trying to to scale back on that. So, I mean, hearing the DSM aspect of it, I think yeah, I think that is what I've heard, but if you think in terms of hard drugs that are illegal, you know, then right. I think it's I think it's a little bit different because those aren't something that you're as likely to get into because hopefully you just say no the first time to to those. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully but that you know that reminds me of that. I I don't know if the program still exists in schools. You know, the just say no program, uh -huh. which um, most people know is really ineffective. It doesn't help. Oh, really? I can give my own experience with opioids because uh, for about five and a half years ago, I had a major back operation. Mm -hmm. It was a twelve-hour back operation. I was out of the office for four months, oh, wow. and on opiates. And so I was on all of them. I was on the big three, the Oxycontin, Oxycodone, and then morphine, and sometimes mm -hmm. all at once. And so I, I remember this very well. It was the time it, we came up to the four month mark and it was time for me to get off of them. Mm -hmm. And I had a whole bunch of them left and I was, and I had stuck them up on top of this shelf and I had come up uh, with a plan with my uh, internist and, you know, he said, okay, here's how you get off of these drugs. Mm -hmm. And I still remember how awful I felt. And one day I looked up there and I thought, I don't have to feel this awful because I have those opiates right up there and I could take them. Mm -hmm. And it's a day I got, I think I was driving at that point because I was, uh, I wasn't taking very many, but I got in the car and I took them all down to the pharmacy, you know, where you can drop stuff like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I really have a, I'd call it an appreciation yeah. for yeah. how difficult it is mm -hmm. if you've been on opiates for some sort of operation or pain in order to get off. And I remember go, before I have a daughter who's a physician and I remember her telling me, he said, dad, you're going to get, you're going to be, you know, become addicted and 
dependent on them. And so, you know, she said, you just have to know that going in. Mm-hmm. So that's a real, that is a real problem. I think it, I think, you know, alcohol is, you talk about being more socially accepted. I suppose it might be, but I think opiate addiction is really hidden. I think yeah. a lot of people try and hide that. And so, yeah. and and it's pretty easy to get them even, I, I don't know if you'd call it the black market, but you know, mm-hmm. you don't have to go through a, a doctor. I've certainly had clients who were trying to get off opiates and it was really easy for them to get them and so it's yeah. a problem. You're right. Yeah. My, my one experience with, with opioids is I was 17, almost 18. And I was about to get my wisdom teeth removed because this was pre Obamacare. And so I was going to lose my insurance, my parents' insurance when I turned mm-hmm. 18 and I was still mm-hmm. being in high school. And so I was going to have to undergo operation and they were going to have to put me under to remove my wisdom teeth. And like, a week before I did something where I cricked my neck just wrong and it stiffened up and I couldn't, I, like I could barely move my neck and it hurt really bad. And so my mom took me to the emergency room and they, they gave me, I don't remember if it was oxycodone or oxycotton, but mm-hmm. they gave me one of those. Yeah. And, and in hindsight, they definitely shouldn't have anyway. So about, a they should have given you a muscle relaxant. But... They did both. They did, did both. They? Okay. Yeah. 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 They did both, which, Anyways, and so, oh, like less than a week later, I went and had the surgery and they gave me Vicodin to deal with the pain. And the Vicodin wasn't enough at this point because I had had the Oxy in my system. And I remember sitting in in my parents' bedroom, just bawling my eyes out, saying, I'm going to get addicted. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. But But I I laugh now too because I mean... (laughs) You know, it was, it, that, that was just my mind. My parents are like, no, you're not, you're fine. And, and I didn't, and it was fine. I was only on it for like a week or two and never once felt a desire or a heavy need to go back to it. But I think it could lead us into a good, another important topic of the genetic component right. to addiction. And yeah. we know that alcoholism tends to, the family dynamic because yeah there's a very strong genetic component especially mm-hmm. the alcoholism but i so i think if you look at the three different um let's call it areas or nature and nurture you know we've talked i've used that term before and so nature being the biology nurture being you know what you might call environment or development so certainly uh, the nature part or biology the genes that people are born with what we find is it counts for about half of a person's risk for addiction. Okay. So which is a lot. And so certainly uh, your gender, ethnicity, presence of other mental disorders, depression, anxiety can also influence the risk for drug and use and addiction. But I, you know, often they put the depression and the uh, anxiety into that biology. I tend not to think of it that way. I think mostly depression and anxiety are environmental or developmental factors. And so environment, what does that mean? A person's environment includes so many different influences like family, uh, friends, economic status, general quality of life, Mm -hmm. peer pressure, physical sexual abuse. So that's certainly a, a factor. Often people who, you know, are dealing with addiction 
uh, it's often about uh, self-soothing or they're self-medicating because you know they haven't been able to deal with that past trauma and we can go into that a little bit later too uh so early exposure to drugs i think often you know i mean if you think about adolescence so anything 12 and on our frontal lobes really aren't fully developed until about age 25 and so what that means is for a lot of a lot of adolescents they aren't making very good choices and so yeah. a friend comes up and says hey try this and you know it's not like they can look down the road they don't have a very good ability to look down the road and think oh what will this lead to it's just right in the moment yeah you know they start taking it and so you know that stress I think, sadly, I see this often parental um, experience like your parents, uh, I, you know, now the, there's an age group around 50 to 60, those parents who have used pot uh, early on, and have continued to. And so now they have adolescent kids who know that their parents use drugs. And for the parents, you know, if you talk to them, they would say, oh, it's not that bad it's and a lot of even i've heard physicians talk about the that pot use or uh, marijuana use is very similar to alcohol and mm -hmm. i don't know i've never tried either so i don't know mm -hmm. but I, i'm just saying that the the child the adolescent sees mom and dad that's one of those environmental factors that may influence you know whether or not they start to uh, take drugs. And then the last thing, development. So you have that combination of the genetic and the environmental factors. I think they interact with these critical, critical developmental uh, stages. And so I think that when part of the problem with adolescence is your brain is still developing. And so if you, you know, in that time when you aren't doing good, con good decision making anyway, mm -hmm. and then you start to put in substances, either alcohol, marijuana, or even harder drugs, it really, I think it messes up the development of the brain. And so mm -hmm. you can have really long term, long lasting negative effects, you know, there's, which. There, yeah, there's a reason that the legal age for drinking is 21 here in the United States. And it's interesting, and I think it'd be interesting to do a study sometime on alcoholism in other countries, because in Germany, the drinking age is 16. And mm -hmm. I know this because we did, we, in high school, we did the foreign exchange program and a lot of people really wanted to go in part because- in Germany? <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of it was the cultural thing, but they were really excited to go because they had a driver's license proving that they were 16 years of age and, you know, and they, and they'd be able to drink. But I agree that our brains are still developing. And nowadays you hear, I hear a lot of ads about, I I'm imagining, I don't know where they come from, but a lot of ads encouraging parents not to let their kids drink because, and I've seen this a lot. I saw it a lot with my friends in high school where they knew their kids were going to be exposed to alcohol at some point, And they knew that there was a strong likelihood of that happening in high school. And so their parents gave them their first drink because they wanted to be with them and they wanted to monitor the situation of the first time their child had a drink. And now we hear ads discouraging that because I mean, not only is it illegal, regardless of if you're their parent or not, your brain is not fully developed. Your frontal lobe, which is the decision-making part of your brain, it's not fully developed until the age of 25. I mean, right. that's, that's a big deal. That's pretty it, significant. 
it is. It is. I think, you know, you bring up an interesting point about different cultures. And I think it's not just, you know, to think, to look at it just in terms of the age of legal drinking, because there are all sorts of cultural components that go into it, the, the, the culture's attitude around alcohol use. And certainly, mm-hmm. like in France, I know having been in France a lot, you know, young kids drinking wine, but I don't know that that turns them into alco- alcoholics. I think it's yeah. more of a cultural thing around celebration, things like mm-hmm. that. So I, th- I think it's the combination of everything. So if you think yeah. of one of the problems here, we have this, this whole thing around it's so forbidden. And then all of a sudden at 21, I have seen this so often with kids who go off to college and then all of a sudden they're legal to drink and it's like they go crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of figuring out how do you ease into it or how do you drink more appropriately once you come of age and so that i believe that's more of a cultural problem uh, than anything else but also if we go back to you know those other factors like development and environment i think for you for children i've i've seen this uh, working with adults who then talk about their adolescence or their childhood Mm -hmm. And often what they're dealing with is the depression or the anxiety. And I see it so often that it's used as a self-medication for anxiety instead of dealing with the anxiety. And so you grow up in this home where there may be, you know, some neglect. There may be some sort of verbal abuse, which sadly is pretty common, maybe some Mm -hmm. physical abuse or sexual abuse. And the adolescent or the young adult doesn't get the help that they need in order to deal with those problems. And it's Mm -hmm. such an easy pathway to either smoke some marijuana or start drinking because you can zone out. And, and so it is, it is such a, an easy and quick way to handle the anxiety and to feel better. And so I see that quite often and it's really hard because once you, I see it sometimes in older adults, you know, in their forties and fifties and, you know, when you do a history with them, it's pretty clear Mm -hmm. that they've been using it for that purpose. And so how do you then help them to transition? Because I think there are healthier ways, which I think we talked about in one of the previous episodes, you know, how do you handle anxiety and depression with the exercise, the meditation and Mm -hmm. the sleep? It's very hard to make the transition because those take effort. And it's so easy just to pour yourself a drink Mm -hmm. or to light up a you know, some marijuana. So I certainly understand it. Yeah. And real quick, just to clarify, I don't want it to sound like we're completely against drinking. Because, oh, right. You know, I, I know a lot of people who, who drink responsibly and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with drinking responsibly. And so what we're really talking about is when it rules your life or what we talked about with the DSM model is right when it's out of control is when it becomes a problem. And I mean, the absolute worst thing that can happen if you're in, if you're addicted to a substance or alcohol, the absolute worst thing that can happen is it could kill you. You can overdose. Right. Right. That's, that's the worst that could happen. And so, you know, when you hear people brush it off and say, oh, it's not that bad. In fact, I had, I had someone say to me, oh yeah, I know I'm an addict. I'm just not that bad of an addict. 
Which... <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know if there's a distinction there, but I, I agree with you. It's not that we're against drinking. All my children yeah. drink drink mm-hmm. responsibly and, mm-hmm. and you know they use it appropriately. Yeah. So the question then becomes, I think, what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you help someone? And and I see this in relationships. And we we use the term, or you hear again in popular culture, the term codependent. I don't know if you uh, mm-hmm. use that, but I uh, I think that particular term is often misused. And that for me, what it really means is like in your relationship, say a husband and wife, and that, you know, the one spouse who's not drinking, the codependency is such that they enable the mm-hmm. abuse or the addiction of the other person because you know really attacking it and saying we need to solve this problem is just too hard it changes the nature of the relationship mm-hmm. and so i i have certainly heard this that uh, someone who's an alcoholic and the spouse says i really like him better when he's drinking That's and a problem. That's a <laughs> which is a flag. problem because you know yeah. okay that you don't have that incentive to say, let's really solve this problem. But the other thing in relationships, and I think this is certainly intimate relationships like marriage, but I think family relationships. Mm -hmm. So parents with children or even siblings, if you're addicted, then the substance becomes the primary relationship. Mm -hmm. It's the thing you focus on. And the, all other relationships are, secondary to the primary relationship of the addiction. And one of the hard things, I think, for parent, well, for anyone who who is in a relationship with someone who's addicted is there's, I was going to say always, I'll probably say always, there's always an element of lying. Yeah. And so you have to, you lie to cover it up. And mm-hmm. what happens is the lying then destroys the trust. And over time, you know, if you're in that relationship, you really can't trust much of what mm-hmm. the person who's the addict says. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, it's really, really harmful for relationships. And it's almost impossible to have that intimate emotional relationship that uh, with an addict yeah. because of the trust issue. And so you can still love them, Absolutely. but it's hard to get what you want out of the relationship. And so it's very damaging on family. It's so hard to have for children in a home with one of the parents as an alcoholic. We see that all the time in psychology. As uh, I think there's even a whole group called Parents of Adult Children. There's probably an acronym that goes, or Adult Children of Alcoholics is what it's called. I don't, I don't know what the acronym would be. But, you know, it's so damaging to their development and they deal with it really the rest of their lives. So that's how it's it's really destructive for relationships. Mm-hmm. But, you know, then the next question would be, well, what do you do about it? Mm-hmm. And it's a hard. It, it really is. And the hardest part about it, if you're in a relationship with someone, is it has to be their decision. Yes. To fix it. That's what makes it so hard, especially... If you're a parent, I would imagine that being probably one of the hardest situations, because if you're a spouse and if they really refuse to take care of it, you can walk away. But if you're a parent, you can't walk away from your child, or at least it's so, so much harder 
to walk away from a child. And so that's just what sucks about it is it has to be their decision to be able to cope with it or to be able to recognize that it is a problem and then want to solve it. Right. And so I, I just read this as an interesting article a couple of weeks ago, and it was about the idea that, uh, you know, popularized in movies is the intervention. Uh-huh. And so, yeah. so, you know, you can see, I, th- I think a lot of it is just uh, what movies give us. But the guy, you know, the person who's the, uh, the addict walks in and all of a sudden he's surrounded by all his friends and family who are doing an intervention with him. Mm-hmm. And so the article was all about how interventions don't work. Yeah. And it, they're really ineffective and it just, you just feel like you're being ganged up on and yeah. you've been ambushed. And so it's not that helpful. And what the article went on to talk about is really something that we've talked. I think maybe in every episode, we've talked about the importance of listening to the other person to see where they're at. Now mm-hmm. you can only do that with an addict when they're, when they're sober. Right. And, and that might be hard, but I think it's important to, be able to connect with them on a more emotional way when they're sober so that you understand what's going on in their life. What is it that's driving this? What is, what are their fears? What are their anxieties? And once you know that, then I think you might be able to better help them. But as you said, um, you know, the addict, I mean, this is another thing I've noticed the addict is the last or the alcoholic is the last one in the room to say, yeah, I'm an alcoholic mm-hmm. for whatever reason that is that label gets resisted by alcoholics all the time. Mm-hmm. But once you accept it, then I think the possibility exists that there's something you can do about it. So let's take a minute to talk about what you can say. I mean, intervention isn't going to work, but like you said, the alcoholic is the last in the room to admit it. So is there a way that you can help a loved one see what's going on? And obviously it's never going to work to just go up to someone and say, did you know you're an alcoholic (laughs) or why did you drink so much? That's that's not going to work. So really good question. And I think that, you know, again, in many episodes, we've used the word boundaries. So you can love the person and you can talk to them about it, but ultimately you have to be able to set boundaries. Mm-hmm. Now, if the if it's the adolescent that has the problem, I think it's a little bit different and parents Absolutely. have yeah. more of an ability to set those boundaries. But even say uh, a parent with an adult child mm-hmm. or a spouse. So you mentioned, uh, you know, with spouse that ultimately you do have the choice to leave. Well, that's a boundary mm-hmm. that's saying, you know, this has to change. And I would even say, I would help them say, okay, here's the plan. And I want you to follow this plan. But if you don't follow the plan, then here's the consequence. Mm -hmm. And as I've said before, never, never, never set a consequence that you aren't willing to follow up with. Mm -hmm. And that's the hard thing, whether you're a parent with an adult child, which means, okay, I'm going to kick you out of my house because you don't get to use that substance while you're living under my roof. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one I've certainly seen many times, but think how hard it is. Your kids are young and will probably never have this issue, but can you imagine yourself in that role of a parent where you might have to kick your kid out? And the, the other thing that you often hear is the addict has to hit rock bottom, you know, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways that's true. And often the only way for that to happen is if you say, okay, you've got to leave the house or Mm -hmm. I'm going to divorce you 
and you know i'm gonna you can't see the kids except under supervision or something like that and so you have a the boundary that you put in place and if you follow up on it i really try and help people see that might be the only way that that addict hits rock bottom and then they make the choice as you said earlier it's got to be their choice to then go seek treatment and i think depending on the level of uh, the addiction certainly inpatient facilities are i think necessary i think that for a lot of people aa or an aa type of program now that doesn't work for everyone i want to acknowledge that because of they they talk about the very high reliance on the higher power and so if you have someone say who who's an atheist or doesn't mm-hmm. believe in that higher power that part can be very difficult with uh, for them but there okay. are really other options out there but i i do know uh, some people who've been in an a for years and very successful mm-hmm. but i think the one thing that we ought to acknowledge is i think often when you're an uh, an addict or an alcoholic i think you have to see yourself that way all the time or for the rest of your life, because I don't know that you can go back to it. I've certainly seen more in the context of alcohol, where people have tried, you know, they've been sober for five years, and they say, Oh, I'm going to try it again. I have never seen that work out well, because it just because there could be a very strong genetic component, which we talked Mm -hmm. about. Maybe they haven't really dealt with those, you know, family of origin issues that might be playing a part in the reason they're self-medicating. And so I think it's, you know, getting into some good treatment, possibly inpatient. And then I think after that, it's really important to do what people call aftercare which Mm -hmm. is going to be hooking up with someone that you can see on a regular basis to help you maintain your sobriety. And I think once I have certainly seen this happen, many people who maintain their sobriety can have really wonderful relationships. Absolutely. And so, and, and it's just, it's heartbreaking to see it when either there's a relapse when it doesn't work. But now this is an old statistic that came from Betty Ford Clinic, which was in Palm Springs, one of the first in the country. I don't think it exists anymore. I think a company called Hazelden bought them out. But what I, when I went down to uh, Betty Ford just to pick up some information, well, they would say that uh, the average addict will relapse seven times wow. bef- before really figuring it out and becoming clean. So Mm -hmm. I think if you're in a relationship with an addict, or even if you're struggling with that, I think you have to accept that they're going to be relapse. And one of the major problems with addiction that we haven't talked about is the element of shame. There's almost always this very strong element of shame that keeps them in that addictive cycle. And so that's the reason that I think talk therapy can be really helpful is it helps you get rid of that shame. So, yeah, talking to someone who is going to help you rather than judge you. And I think that's one of the great things about talk therapy is this person, your therapist that you're talking to, they don't know you from anyone else. And not married to you, not your parent. And so they don't have to go down that shame road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that's true for any sort of mental, anything that you're dealing with is why mm-hmm. it can be easy to talk to a counselor is because that's all the relationship entails. It's a very, it's a strictly just a professional relationship. And so it's easy to open up and tell them things yeah. and they're not going to judge you or make you feel ashamed. 
Okay, that is all we have time for. And next week, we are going to hit some of the topics that we weren't able to cover today. And that is more around compulsive behaviors that don't really fit into the model of addiction, mm-hmm. but are still problematic. So things like eating disorders, I know that's pretty common, or you know, sexual addictions or... Or pornography is a big one nowadays. Yeah, yeah. pornography, right. Gaming, gaming actually is yeah, falls gaming, into that. Social media, really yeah. anything can yeah. be, and I'm saying this with air quotes, addiction, Yeah, but is mislabeled. 